as the American economy reopens, one of our biggest challenges is figuring out what changes from COVID-19 will be temporary and in what ways the pandemic has permanently altered our way of life. Well, after over six months of operating without a playbook, the world of fundraising is going through similar challenges. What was an emergency response? And what has permanently altered the fundraising landscape? We're going to try to answer some of those questions today by breaking down five ways that coronavirus has changed fundraising forever. We're reopening fundraising next on the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. And welcome and welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. I'm your host, Dan Saunders, and it is so great to be speaking with you again in one of these full-length episodes where we have an opportunity to really do a deep dive into some pressing issues in fundraising. Um, It's been too long. Obviously, like everybody else in the world, uh, coronavirus threw us a big curveball, and we made some changes on the fly. We shifted our focus to providing a lot of special coverage related to the pandemic. And um, we hope that our special content and our interviews were helpful for for you. We were very proud to be part of the discussion and the quick response of fundraisers who jumped out there to try to help other fundraisers and uh, companies and organizations get through what it was for lack of a better word, just an unprecedented time, absolutely no playbook. And we really kind of had to lean on each other to get through those early days. And um, we got such tremendous feedback about our interviews. We expanded that series and we really hope that you've been enjoying that content. And we're certainly going to be keeping up with that. A lot more uh, groundbreaker interviews uh, to come. But uh, we do want to get back into a habit of doing these full-length episodes because there is so much to break down in the world of fundraising. And of course, right now uh, at the top of the list is the impact on fundraising from the COVID-19 pandemic. And not just the immediate impact, but long-term. I've been thinking more about that as we've kind of gotten our feet on the ground and gotten settled a little bit and gotten past the emergency response of the first couple of months. And fortunately, a lot of the news uh, on the fundraising front is phenomenal. I mean, America just just showed up and, and demonstrated uh, its generous spirit. Um, such wonderful stories about um, record fundraising for um, food pantries and Uh, health causes and things directly related to COVID-19 relief, but also causes that are not related to COVID-19 at all. We kind of all uh, inherently knew that COVID-19 could pose uh, a threat to lots of things financially that we cared about. You know, that, that was one of the unique aspects of this is that we really were in all of this together and we knew seeing all these businesses closed that that was going to impact our nonprofits as well. So I've just heard uh, amazing stories about charities of all type that had uh, phenomenal fundraising numbers in the spring. And I think we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief when we started to see those April and May numbers come in. And um, for many of us, we were just blown away seeing um, December level results in the middle of the year like that during a pandemic. Of course, part of that is the unique aspect that um we were all stuck inside, especially people who are in the direct mail donor demographics, traditionally uh, older, um, may, may be uh, spending more, even more time inside than than others and having more time to dedicate it to the mail and the unique 
um, attributes of direct mail being appointment viewing and, and people having more time to focus on the mail when they went and walked to the mailbox, which may have been, you know, their only time out of the house every day. It, it there were just a lot of unique things that came together that, um, that, that were, I think helpful for direct mail for all kinds of causes. And of course, uh, you can't dismiss just the incredible record fundraising we saw on the digital side for emergency relief. So it was a unique combination. And um, as we've gotten past those early days where we just didn't know what the impact was going to be on our causes and organizations, I have started to think a lot more about long-term changes. Because one of the one of the you don't want to say benefits because COVID-19 has been just such a horrific global tragedy. Um, but sometimes during these difficult times, there are also times of forced innovation. I mean, we're certainly seeing that uh, in the commercial world on the technology front. Um, COVID-19 has is going to change our world in ways that we can't even begin to imagine right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether the uh, the the urban revitali- revitalization that we've seen over the last couple decades is going to reverse now because people uh, companies overnight figured out that their uh, employees can be productive working from home and people can live wherever they want. So are people going to now start to move out into the suburbs and uh, rural areas because they no longer need to live in a city because they don't need to work in an office? I mean, there, there's so many things. And then never mind uh, impacts on the travel industry and entertainment, the explosion of streaming, video games. I mean, there are so many things. A lot of them were happening anyway, but it, it's 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 one of those landmark events in human history that we're going to look back on 10 years from now and realize just how much it changed the world. And, and I think fundraising is certainly going to be a part of it. And maybe some of those things were changes that were coming anyway. Um, maybe it just expedited, expedited some of those trends. Um, or, you know, there's there could have just been some genuine innovation here. And, and we're going to dig into that because I've identified five ways that I believe COVID-19 has changed fundraising forever. And we're going to break those down in just a couple minutes. But before we we get into um, really the, the crux of the show, I do think it's important as we're talking about COVID-19 and reopening fundraising that uh, we do acknowledge that this battle is not over, not on the global front, not uh, not here at home. Um, you know, as, as, as I talk to you this evening, um, we're currently it looks like we're currently seeing a genuine second wave in parts of Europe cases are starting to tick up uh here in the United States as well and regardless of when a vaccine comes along um we're heading right into flu season so um it would be very foolish to think that we have conquered this thing and and we certainly don't want to speak about it in past tense. Um, of course, anyone who's been impacted by this, um, our hearts go out to you. Uh, we're thinking about anyone who's a victim of COVID nineteen and and their loved ones. Um, you know the numbers are just horrific. There's no other way to put it. And um, of course, uh, we we take our hats off and we thank everyone who has been part of the response to this. Uh, starting first and foremost with healthcare workers. And um, also um, essential employees. And let's hope we never take for granted the fact that people who keep our grocery stores filled and keep trucks moving on the road and deliver our mail, um, that 
they really are, uh, they're not just essential in a crisis, they're essential for keeping the country moving. And let's hope we never take um, these hardworking for people for granted again. So there are so many uh, heroes in big and little ways and, and everyday heroes from COVID-19. Um, but of course, um, we, we don't want to act like this is totally behind us. But that said, fundraising is the ultimate long game because it it never ends. So we kind of have to always be looking. And, and if anything, COVID-19 has taught us that we need to be planning for the future. So I don't think it's too early at all to talk about how this is going to impact um, fundraising moving forward and the changes that the pandemic has brought on. And uh, we're going to get into those changes right now. All right. So here we go. And the first way that fundraising has permanently been changed by COVID-19 is that diversification is no longer optional. And we mean that in a couple different ways, and we're going to break it down um, in a couple different ways. Um, but first, looking at our fundraising and communication channels that um, prior to COVID, I think uh, it, it was kind of seen as a luxury if you were able to add communication channels that were not based on fundraising. And, and there was way too much focus on uh, looking at how much revenue individual channels um, generated as opposed to what they were doing to cultivate the relationship with the donor. And um, this show has long been a proponent of um, adding layers to the relationships with your donors through uh, communication channels such as Facebook, Instagram, um, other social, uh, LinkedIn, other social media networks. Um, in addition to email, direct mail, the traditional fundraising channels is ways to add layers to the relationship, ways to add more value uh, or provide more value to the donor. Um, but in the case of a situation like COVID-19, these information channels can become a lifeline for your organization. So if you were a direct mail donor and you were not connected with an organization, if, uh, either through email or social media, um, you may not have known what was going on at that organization for weeks because maybe your next mail piece didn't address it. Maybe it was drafted too late and um, you, you didn't know if it was impacting operations, what was happening programmatically, whereas organizations who have relationships with their donors um, on social media were able to do live videos from their home on their iPhones and just give quick updates about what was going on. In addition to having um, correspondence with their donors, taking questions and answers, things like that, and ultimately providing um, providing value and formal content in the way of uh, question and answer sessions or uh, special presentations and, and, and things like that. But um, social media was such a, a critical lifeline for organizations in those early days because nobody knew what the heck was going on with anything. And uh, this was a fantastic way for organizations to reach out to the donors to let them know that, yes, we are still here. Um, let them know how they were doing personally, how they were faring, how their employees were faring, and that their work was carrying on. Um, if it was something that... Um, that COVID and the shutdowns posed an existential threat to the organization, like a museum, uh, like a cultural center, 
um, the organization could begin planting those seeds as well, that we're still here, our mission carries on, but we're expecting an impact uh, from this prolonged shutdown. So you could start um, planting those seeds in your donors' minds. But organizations which had the ability to do that had such an upper hand in those early days. And um, of course, you can only communicate with your donors on social media if they follow you on social media. And one thing I see too few organizations doing or or too many organizations doing is they still kind of put donors into these buckets of who wants to communicate on social media, who wants to communicate on email, who wants to uh, communicate uh, just be exclusively via direct mail. And yes, to an extent, we should allow donors to decide how they want to receive value and communicate with the organization. And clearly, if somebody says, I don't want to get mail from you, or I don't want to get emails from you, we, we should respect that. But I think we need to do a better job of sending our direct mail donors postcards, asking them for information that we're missing, um, if we're missing an email address. And, um, and, and if we're going to do that, of course, um, include some blurbs on the back about the value that you're going to provide to them if you get their email. So it's not just asking and not actually giving any value in return. That's always critically important here. It's not just give us your information so we can talk to you. It's give us our information. So this is the value we can provide to you, whether it's a newsletter or something else, but also in the same spirit, using postcards as a way to encourage donors to, um, uh, to follow you on social media, uh, to use your email channels as a way to push your social channels, and not just to push them, but to push the unique value and communication uh, um, communication style that uh, those channels bring. And and this is really um, kind of the nexus of unsiloed fundraising, unsiloed marketing is uh, not just having all these channels work together, but to work together in a coordinated manner to get donors to connect with the organizations on as many channels and methods as possible. I think we're still too much in that mind frame of, well, the donors pick. And yes, we want to communicate with them the way that they want to be communicated with, but we can also nudge them by providing value. And And the more ways that you have to connect with your donors, the more insulated you are from a radical change, whether that's um, a, a, a pandemic, a potential second wave, um, something like a natural disaster, anything which could conceivably impact your operations or impact your ability to uh, communicate with your donors normally. Um, adding these extra touch points, it just enables you to get your message out regardless of, of what's happening. And the organizations who have a, a, a successful apparatus set up around social media really realized that and had a leg up in those early days. By the same token, um, organizations which have been utilizing digital fundraising successfully and may not have seen a, uh, a use for direct mail, I think direct mail demonstrated its value. We're going to talk more about direct mail later on, but organizations who um, have been relying on digital fundraising, uh, again, if you could scale digital fundraising, it's great because it's... Um, because it can have lower overhead than direct mail um, and organizations that are able to do that and scale younger donors or digital donors. Um, that's fantastic. I would never take anything away from that. But in general, on a regular day, I do believe just, you know, from seeing the numbers every day and seeing the number of donors who do still respond to the mail, that organizations are leaving money on the table by not engaging in that medium. 
and that I don't think it's something that I don't think that not doing direct mail provides um, is is as much of a distinguishing quality as maybe we want to think that it is that donors look at that and they think that you're being environmentally conscious or that you're modern and they're going to engage with you and not engage with another organization. If they only want to donate and interact with you digitally and they don't want direct mail, that's great. But I don't think they're giving you credit for not interacting or reaching out to the millions of donors who still are direct mail responsive, many of which are exclusively direct mail responsive. Of course, the other aspect of when we talk about diversifying is the types of ways that you're raising money. And and obviously, the types of organizations which took the biggest hit here were organizations that are reliant on live events, walks, runs, things of that nature. So um, I think this is a very important reflection point that we just have to be looking at um, how what conceivable revenue channels and communication channels could be valuable for the organization. And it really kind of comes down to not picking and choosing, but um, creating those connections where they may be of value to the donor and to the organization and just making sure that you have as many possibilities uh, as as many options as possible. And uh, clearly in a pandemic situation, if you have a digital and direct mail apparatus, uh, you might be able to weather the loss of your live events better than organizations that are almost entirely dependent on those live events. And we're not just talking about the traditional fundraising channels or uh, just social media communication either. When we're talking about diversification, we're really talking about um, any conceivable way that your organization is leaving donations and donor attention on the table. We're talking about live stream fundraising or gaming fundraising. I mean, imagine if you are an organization that um, that was that is related in a cause that's related to COVID relief, or if in the future you have to respond to a natural disaster. Imagine if you have a network of gamers or live stream influencers who are ready to go to raise money for your organization. I mean, that's what's so exciting about live stream fundraising is how quickly it can raise money for these causes that people are passionate about. So that's an opportunity moving forward of, of maybe where you can fill in the gap if there is a, an unexpected need for your organization. Um, Certainly text messaging, both as a way of emergency fundraising and as a way of communicating with your donors in a crisis. DRTV, if your organization has a budget that may make that possible. Um, even face-to-face -face fundraising, which sounds odd to talk about now because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but face-to-face uh, -face fundraising will make a comeback. It was experiencing a huge resurgence um, before the pandemic because there's been a lot of advancements there with um, targeting and scientific techniques for message target for message targeting and and, and testing and uh, a lot of good things are happening there with face to face so um the key is really just to to look at um how broadly you can diversify what kind of channels you should be using to communicate your donors um how they can give to you where you maybe are lacking some coverage right now and the idea is not just to be diversified so that you can speak to your donors communicate with them in as many ways as possible and receive donations but also so that you could be nimble and responsive and move resources around accordingly if an unexpected crisis does come up that may impact your fundraising operations on a particular channel and now we're going to move on to the second way that coronavirus has changed fundraising forever, 
and that is that authentic is the new on brand. Now, authenticity is not a new topic for this podcast. Um, we've talked a lot. In fact, we dedicated an entire episode to it of how to um, develop authentic communications with your donors to help uh, humanize your brand. And sometimes that involves very simple, um, very simple things. And um, a, a big stumbling block for a lot of organizations and the reason why they have not gone into content production um, digitally is concerns about production values, um, about not meeting donor expectations, about looking cheap and maybe um, and, and maybe not living up to the brand that the organization wants to project. And this this kind of goes back to the whole notion of, well, what is the organization's brand? Is it something that's centrally created or does the organization effectively have a different brand on different types of platforms? Um, you know, going back to the idea of humanizing your organization, um, we're all different versions of ourselves in different settings. And that's how I envision uh, branding to be. Your organization's brand is going to be very different on TikTok than it's going to be in direct mail or on email because it's a different audience and people are utilizing that channel in a different kind of way. So this has been a topic of conversation for a while. That's been the stumbling block is the conventional notion of uh, of branding and staying true to that brand and uh, how that doesn't really hold up in a multi-channel, uh, the multi-channel world that we're in where there's so many different ways to communicate with organizations. But all of that kind of got thrown away once the pandemic um, really started to kick into high gear and uh, lockdowns are orders ordered and staffs were working from home and organizations had no choice but to start communicating and providing value with their donors um, primarily through social media is where I saw most of this but certainly email as well um, as a way to get in front of the situation to let donors know that they were still there and that their work was carrying on and, and to maintain that connection uh, because I believe that was a critical element to maintaining bonds with the donor during that time, especially for causes that are not related to COVID um, so that you still have a place in the donor's mind, you maintain their attention and that they're still thinking about you as something that's very important to them, even when there's so many other needs in the world related to COVID relief. So organizations really kind of had to um, jump right into the fire, really was baptism by fire. And I saw some remarkable things. Um, I, one of the best examples of this was uh, the Cincinnati Zoo started doing just Facebook Live um, kind of wa walking uh, walking tours of the zoos and they would have zookeepers on who would do just basic question and answer segments uh, with, you know, people would write questions in the chat and they would talk about the animals and they would answer questions. And it was it was so simple and just so so great and so sincere. And it showed that how committed the zoo is to taking care of the animals and to um, conservation efforts um, that during a pandemic, when the world was shutting down, these people, these essential employees were still on the job taking care of animals. And it was just it was just an amazing tone that it struck. I mean, you really couldn't help but be moved by their dedication to it. And uh, again, I think the primary 
objective here was maintaining ties with the donors uh, and and customers, uh, quite honestly, because you're when you're talking about a zoo, um, you know, a lot of the revenue is going to be um, from people who are actually um, going to the zoo in person. So just a way to kind of uh, provide them value, maintain that connection, maintain their attention, maintain their interest. Um, very simple, but very, very effective. I saw um, a lot of museums kind of came up with content on the fly where they were doing Zoom interviews with experts, and sometimes they were also doing Q&A sessions. And I saw organizations who had personnel who were recording videos from home, um, just talking about what was going on. And I I mean, that was one of the things that I suggested uh, right away that organizations start doing. I actually recorded, um, recorded a video on the, myself that I posted to the LinkedIn page that... Um, I believe it was the first day that I was home uh, during the lockdown here in Jersey and um, just about the importance of posting these simple homegrown videos to talk about how um, the cause uh, the, the pandemic is impacting your organization and, and to just talk to your donors and establish that dialogue right off the bat. I saw a lot of really great stuff like that. And of course, it's not just relegated to nonprofits. All the entertainment industry had to reinvent itself on the fly. We saw late night shows and news programs starting to be recorded in, in people's homes. I think, um, uh, I believe the the Tonight Show um, and, and the Late Show were some of the first that I really saw starting to do this. Um, of course, the, the best example of authentic homegrown content was probably um, some good news. That was uh, John Krasinski's um, project uh, from the office. And it was just so sincere. It started off just, uh, him and his wife, um, uh, recording it. They would have, uh, homegrown, um, pictures that were drawn by his daughter. And they would just talk about good things that were going on in the world when we probably needed something like that more than ever. It's just amazing how creative minds are able to fill this gap that emerges. And, um, it was just, it, it was just, perfect for the times and you you didn't you weren't concerned you know it looked like anybody else filming a video um or filming a show in their home um you know the the audio wasn't perfect the lighting wasn't perfect uh the editing wasn't perfect but you didn't care about that you cared about the stories they were telling the fact that he was clearly doing it for the right reasons and just the uh, emotion and the good feelings that it conveyed and i, I think that's the way to judge content moving forward. And by all means, I, I think authentic, these kind of homegrown content pieces of content are important for humanizing your brand. It doesn't need to be exclusive. Um, if your organization can invest in a budget uh, where you're able to hire a content creator or invest in software, um, cameras, lighting, things like that. I, I mean, there's absolutely no reason not to make highly produced videos. But I do think that this uh, authentic homegrown approach should be a component for any organization because it just comes across as real and human, for lack of a better word. And I, I, at the end of the day, the bottom line is that all content should be judged based on the, the, the simple criteria. Is it providing value to the donor? And if it is, 
whether it's emotionally connecting with them, whether it's providing access to experts or answering their questions, or simply just making them feel good, um, talking about how much you value the donors, thank you know, thanking them, or telling stories about people your organization has helped. Um, that's an v- emotional value to the donor. Um, you know, especially now we we can all use feel good stories like that. That was really the genius of some good news, and that. I mean, that, that show, if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it's on YouTube. All the episodes are up. Um, it's he, he since has stopped because he's going back to his, his day job. But um, it, it there's so many lessons in that for nonprofit organizations, and it just demonstrates the value of telling feel-good stories and demonstrating your positive impact on the world and just how well that will be received and how much more important that is than how well-lit your, you know, your location shots are or how sleek your editing is. Um, but by all means, um, if you have the ability to do more high, uh, advanced productions, you should do those as well. But whether it's um, videos or whether it's podcast, like the one you're listening to now, my advice is, um, and and I, I did an interview um, not too long ago um, with Justin McCord from RKD Group. And like this was, uh, he, he had similar advice. Um, he he's the host of the Group Thinkers podcast, and and it's just if you have something valuable to say, just do it. Hit record, um, whether it's whether you're recording your voice or you're recording yourself, just start doing it. And if you have something meaningful to say and you have a built-in audience, I mean, this is the genius about content for nonprofits is. You have a built-in audience of donors. Um, when we talk about the uphill climb of that is content marketing, that's usually if you're starting from scratch. And yes, it takes a long time to s- start an organic following and to build it. But you have a built-in base of donors who are already passionate about your cause and have backed that up with financial contributions. So just start today. Start producing podcasts and videos and if it catches on and provides value, that could be your case study for saying, okay, now let's invest a little bit more capital into this to improve the production values or to increase the amount of the content. But um, that really is the lesson, I think, when it comes to nonprofits and content from the pandemic is don't overthink it. Um, if you have something valuable to say, just hit play and good things will happen if you're focused on bringing value to your donors. And now we move on to the third way that fundraising has forever been changed by coronavirus, and that is that community is king. And this was something that organizations really discovered who did successfully implement um, authentic content, going back to our second reason, is that they intentionally or unintentionally cultivated a sense of community with their donors at a time when we all needed um, belonging and community um, more than ever because we really had no choice because we didn't have that in-person experience and we were looking for people who we could... um, who we could connect with um, in a way that the physical connection just was not possible during those days of the lockdown. And um, and the organizations who were able to successfully cultivate that commu- sense of community, or better yet, um, already had that in place, 
um, probably uh, have realized the benefits of it financially as um, as the pandemic has gone on and as um, as the economy has started to reopen and people have been able to go out and do more things. Um, and and the reason why I say that is because um, while coronavirus and the lockdowns, which forced us all indoors, um, expedited um, expedited uh, this this trend and really brought it front and center. It's not new. Um, there has been a declining sense of community um, going on in in our society for for quite some time, um, and there's a lot of different theories about this. Um, a very common one is that as our society has become um, more sec- secular, that uh, fewer people attend religious services regularly. And I'm not pushing religiosity. Um, I'm you know, just talking about uh, statistics, and I will link to them in the show notes. These are based on um, some great data from Gallup, which really kind of shines a light on this, that you don't really stop to think about it. But um, in the last 20 years, the percentage of people who regularly attend a religious service, whether it's a church or temple or mosque or synagogue, um, has gone down from around 70% to 50% um, as of 2018. And a big part of that is a generational trend, which appears likely to continue moving into the future. And um, when you stop to think about it, um, this was such a big source of community and getting together and and bonding over common interests for people. And it's not something that we've ever replaced because you don't really stop to think about it. It's just one of those things that happens over time. And it's not just um, religion. Um, things like uh, union membership and in-person clubs, thing, uh, elk cl- Elks clubs, um, th- things like that have been declining uh, for, for quite some time as well. And um, we just have not replaced these bonds. And as as um, as a result, we've become more insular. And there is a, a loneliness epidemic um, in the United States. One in three older Americans say that they're um, they're lonely on a regular basis. So this is a very real thing. And this is one of the real dangers of 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 uh, of uh, one of the one of the unintended consequences, perhaps. Of, of the lockdowns, which were, of course, necessary at the time. But just one of the long term things to look out for is, is just the mental health consequences of, of of people being lonely and isolated from each other. And um, the other side of that, though, is that even before the pandemic, there has been an explosion of, in activity of online communities. And this is probably best illustrated by the growth in Facebook groups. Now, you may have noticed that Facebook groups has become a very focal marketing point of Facebook, and that's no coincidence. Um, the number of people who Facebook identifies as being in a meaningful group has quadrupled um, over the last few years uh, from uh, 100 million in 2017 to over 400 million today, which is incredible. So people are... Um, People are clinging to these these groups where they can bond with people who have common interests. And it's not just Facebook either. Um, things like Reddit have taken off for along for the same reasons and uh, lots of other online communities and websites. And, um, you know, big indicator of this is that if you search for any interest, and I literally mean any interest, you will find a podcast for it. And it's not a coincidence. It's not just people who are 
recording out into empty space in their basements. I mean, people are listening to these things. That's why podcasts are taking off and these mini communities are forming over all kinds of interests. I mean, I, you know, if you, whether it's, um, whether it's, it's history or, um, or you're into travel or you're into sports, of course, um, crocheting, there's a huge online crocheting community, as I found out. So there's literally an interest group for everything now. And that is no coincidence. It's because um, people have this inherent desire to come together over common interests. Uh, that's one of the reasons why sports are so important is that it's one of those things that uh, kind of like like religion can bring people together where you're not really concerned about your backgrounds or your political affiliations. Um, you're just coming together over this this common interest and, um, you know, side note to that, th there's a lot of theories out there that that's one of the reasons why our, our politics has become so ugly is that, um, political affiliations have ta basically taken over as a sense of community, um, filling in the void for all of this other stuff. But regardless, this movement online is indicative that people are wanting to come together over common interests. And there are all kinds of sites and contents that are picking up to fill that void that are seeing that need. And, and I, I believe that nonprofits, um, this is just a, an amazing opportunity for nonprofits to take advantage of this. Now, there is an aspect of uh, community already in place for nonprofits. You see this with a lot of organizations who do runs and walks on a very local level, that it's the same people who come out for these things every year, and and people do form relationships. But um, short of uh, organizations who have those event, uh, those very local events, I don't think there's been a lot of emphasis on this. And, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to... Um, set up a dialogue with their social media users where you're constantly providing them value and content, but also asking their question, asking, um, answering their questions and getting feedback for them and really cultivating a two-way relationship. And just to, to put some numbers to this, Global Web Index uh, conducted a survey with Reddit um, trying to better understand why there's been so much growth in online communities. And uh, they polled people, asked them for the reason, 36% said it was so they could have meaningful conversations. That was the top reason. 28% I'm respected by others. That was the second. 24% said I can be myself. 21% I feel appreciated by other people. 19% my voice is heard. That's a key one. 18% I have a sense of belonging. Belonging. And if you look at all of those reasons... Those are all things that nonprofits have the ability to tap into both um, digitally online, but also in person uh, when the world gets back to normal, as, as we hope happens sooner than later. But this is, doesn't necessarily have to be an in-person thing. Uh, nonprofits are an incredible uh, position to facilitate this. Um, I, I think the logical first step is going back to the point a few minutes ago is to form a Facebook group. And the reason why nonprofits don't do this is I imagine for the same reason a lot of brands don't do um, Facebook groups, and that's uh, the loss of control because other people can then post and you don't have control over the content in there. But that's the point is that you're telling your followers, hey, you matter. We want to hear what you have to say. We want you to share pictures of you participating in our events. Uh, we want to see your questions. And you do have uh, a certain amount of control over Facebook groups. 
Um, it's just not in, in real time and other people can post. And yes, sometimes there's some blowback for that, but the, the, the trade-off, the positive trade-off is so much better of being able to have people feel like they're heard because what happens is, is yes, you're going to have a relationship with these followers, but these followers are going to start to develop relationships with other donors and other supporters of your organization. And then all of a sudden, it's not a transactional relationship, but the support for your organization. And, and this is any type of group where you can have uh, a special uh, an interest around your cause, whether it's animals or veterans or his, his, uh, history or um or, or preservation of, of natural causes, um, international relief. I mean, whatever the causes that people are supporting, they also have a passionate interest in that, and they want to connect with people who have similar interests. And what you'll find is that, yes, people will talk about your cause and why they support your organization, and there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm about that, and that's fantastic. They're also going to be developing human relationships with these people, and that's what tends to happen in these communities is that it starts over a common interest over a subject matter, and um, and then it grows from there, and then people end up connecting on other similar interests or just on a human level. They find people who have are passionate about the same causes who they like. And, and again, this is something that many, many people need because of that loss of community in real life. And especially now at a time, um, you know, where there's still a lot of people who are isolated. We have to remember that, that yes, the economy is reopening and a lot of people are going back to work and businesses are reopening, but there's millions and millions of, of people who are, are either older or have, um, high risk conditions that make them susceptible to COVID-19 who are still isolated. So there's been a need for this. There's a need for it now more than ever. And in addition to the, the financial benefits that I think will come from organizations cultivating true sense of community, um, there's the other side of it, your fiduciary of care to the donor um, emotionally and being able to provide this connection and the amount of just good that your organization will be doing beyond your immediate cause and being able to connect and provide your donors with uh, happiness and a sense of community. It's just, it's an incredible thing. And I think there's just such a missed opportunity for nonprofits to, to fill that void because you inherently have a group of people who are so passionate about a cause that they're all contributing to it. So they have that similar interest off the ons uh, uh, from the onset. And, and there's a great opportunity to better connect them. And some of the ways that you can do this, um, again, when the world reopens, um, I think I like, um, I, I know of a, a political organization that has uh, what they refer to as sentinels who are basically community captains who organize events on a, on a community based level. Um, but I think organizations can do that too. They can have a separate advocate program. I do think there should be separate programs to getting uh, for, for getting donors to connect with each other in person on, on the most local of level, of course, when, when the world allows for that to be done. But even in the meantime, that could still be done over Zoom or, or digitally. There's no reason that can't get started now. And, and I think this is just something people are going to love it. People are going to love it because you're connecting them um, over a mutual cause, over uh, a, a, a cause that they have a mutual interest in. 
but you're giving them so much more in the process. And because nonprofits are inherently doing something good in the world and you have a group of people who are supporting something good in the world, it's just such a tremendous um, foundation to build a community, an organic community of people who um, are going to want to connect with each other and, and bond on a deeper level. And when you do that, um, as as my, my, my good friend uh, and friend of the podcast, uh, Mike Dirksen says, um, you're making your nonprofit integral to their identity. And then once it becomes integral to their identity, they're very unlikely to leave you and to stop supporting your organization because um, you're providing so much more than just the transactional value of their donation. And now we're on to the fourth way that coronavirus has changed fundraising forever. And that is that direct mail is the bedrock of fundraising. Now that's not necessarily a change per se. Direct mail for many organizations still accounts for 90% plus of fundraising revenue. But um, I think what the pandemic has revealed and reiterated is um, the unique uh, unique characteristics of direct mail, which make it effective and distinct from other fundraising channels. And uh, I can tell you personally that most of the organizations that I work with uh, personally do not have direct COVID-related missions. And um, I firsthand have seen a number of different organizations and a number of different markets, uh, in addition to reports and information that's been put out there by other companies, of all kinds of different causes having a just an exceptional uh, fundraising period in the mail in um during the initial days of the shutdown and which continued into the summer and i personally am skeptical that that would have been the case if these organizations had been primarily digital or or had digital first operations and um alternatively um as we talked about in the opening uh there was uh just some phenomenal fundraising efforts um, for uh, COVID-related uh, co- relief causes online, which you would expect um, emergent uh, online to be uh, very effective uh, as as it tends to be for emergency relief type fundraisers. Um, but I actually believe that that's part of the reason why direct mail was so effective is because it gave people or it caught people when they were away from digital noise, when they were paying attention to their mailbox. And um, that opt-in attention aspect of direct mail is just so underrated, but it does help um, it, it does help make it a good medium for mailing during times of uncertainty. Um, we certainly have seen that during the pandemic. Um, but I, I even thinking back to um, during the financial crisis, um, when there was so much going on and so much uncertainty in the world, direct mail still worked for a wide range of organizations. And, you know, that was uh, during a, a time when there was a lot of short term financial uncertainty about the stability of financial institutions. And, you know, we forget just how chaotic those days were, but direct mail really helped organizations get through that time and organizations that stayed in the mail tend to emerge tend to uh, tended to emerge stronger uh, through the great recession 
So um, I think at the very least, it makes the case that direct mail is important as a fallback option for lean times um, because of the opt-in, uh, uh, the opt-in attention aspect of it and during times where there was massive distractions. But also looking at location-based charities like museums and cultural centers and zoos that direct mail, um, in addition to being a good way to raise revenue when uh, you don't have the option of in-person attendance, uh, you know, whether it's because of the pandemic or any other reason, um, direct mail tends to produce more institutional donors. Um, and, and, and I think that's supported by a lot of the lifetime value data that is out there about direct mail donors. Um, in part because there's just more, there's more attention involved in making uh, a direct mail donation and reading a direct mail letter and more uh, commitment that's involved, especially if you're writing letters to uh, cultivate institutional donors, uh, which is another aspect of direct mail is as opposed to, you know, maybe, maybe digital is a great vehicle for getting those emergency or reactionary or, or transactional gifts. Um, the focus of direct mail programs um, specifically when we're talking about the bedrock is their ability to cultivate people who are globally invested in your organization that may, um, that may have a lower response rate, but tend to give more and have better retention rates. And uh, if you make uh, a membership acquisition, the focus of your direct mail program, you'll emerge even better from periods where uh, during challenging times, because those people are inherently more invested in the global nature of your organization and are going to be willing to step up to help save it uh, when there are financial challenges, uh, regardless of what that reason is. But um, and again, I, I, I really I'm very careful when I when I talk about this. I mean, my biases are are evident. You know, as a direct mail list broker, I'm a strong proponent of direct mail um, on most days. Um, I also recognize the unique capabilities of digital. Remember, we opened this show um, in the diversification segment, um, as, as well as uh, talking about the um, the value of authentic communications about how important digital communications were in those early days of the pandemic and getting out in front of the, si front of the situation and uh, developing a relationship with your donors um, to get through those hard times. So by no means are we saying that digital shouldn't be part of the picture. Of course, it, this is all about having an all of the above approach. And um, for organizations who have direct mail programs, I think this is a case uh, to continue investing in them. Um, and their sustained value for organizations that don't have direct mail programs, uh, believe what we've seen during the pandemic. This is a strong, uh, there's a strong case to have a direct mail program, even if it's an incremental source of revenue, just as another way of reaching your donors uh, during a time of crisis or during a, a hectic time when there's a lot of digital noise um, online. And, and for the same reason, if you're a digital first organization and you don't have the benefits of doing emergency relief type fundraisers per se. Um, and you're in a period where maybe you are getting lost in the conversation to those very worthy and deserving causes. Um, having a direct mail program to fall back on um, can, can help mitigate the risk from that. So, and there's a lot of themes here that go back to our first topic of diversification. Um, 
but I think specifically to direct mail when we're talking about diversifying, I see direct mail as a stabilizing force um, during uncertain times and uh, a great way to um, kind of an insurance policy um, for um, for events which may impact your ability to fundraise on other mediums or where your donor's attention may be fractured online. Um, and direct mail gives you a great way to um, to cap to capture their attention when they're ready, willing, and able to pay it to your cause. And now we've come to our fifth and final way that coronavirus has forever changed fundraising. And before we dive into our um, our final topic, I just want to say that, of course, this is not meant to be a all-encompassing list. Uh, these are five things that I thought were significant um, in how they're going to impact fundraising moving forward. But of course, there are many ways that we could talk about how COVID-19 has impacted fundraising over the long term. And I would love to continue that conversation with you. So I think this is a great time just to give a quick plug. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn if you're not already and join the uh, Dynamic Nonprofits LinkedIn group where I share all of the episodes and contents from the Dynamic Nonprofits feed. But that's also the exclusive destination for continuing these conversations. And I would love to continue this conversation because I think it's such a an interesting and important one as we uh, look ahead to the uh, the months and years ahead and, and the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic. But now let's get into our uh, our fifth topic here. And the fifth topic is crisis planning. Expect the unexpected. Now, if nothing else. The COVID-19 pandemic um, should have been a wake-up call for your organization internally to not be caught by a failure uh, of imagination. Now, um, a failure of imagination is a term that's often used to describe governments that uh, fail to plan and anticipate for existential crises because uh, they're suffering from a lack of imagination. Um, You could certainly put a global pandemic into that category uh, where it was something that was talked about around the margins, but there was no concrete plans put into motion. And that's a failing decades in the making. And um, not to get super dark with the analogy, but that's how you have to think about crisis planning for your organization. It's with, with no bounds of imagination. What are some potential existential crises that could hit our organization that we're not currently uh, prepared for. And when you think about it that way, you end up coming up with a pretty comprehensive list. And there's a lot of companies that uh, and consultants who specialize in crisis planning. And if you work at a larger organization or you have larger clients that are able to invest in something like that, I think it's super invaluable. I mean, uh, imagine if you're an organization who had a game plan for a situation like this, where uh, even if it's not for a global pandemic, a situation where you had to, everybody had to work from home and you understood how you were going to operate remotely, compare that to what most of us had to do, which was just figuring things out on the fly. Mm-hmm. So um, you can keep that in mind about how things um, have gone over the last few months and just how much easier life would have been if you had a plan in place, even if it was not, um, even if it was not a fully developed one, if you just had some pieces that you could put into motion right away. And you know, short of another global pandemic, which hopefully uh, nobody has to have a conversation like this for another hundred years. I mean, um, 
COVID-19 is a one in 100 year event, but um, there are plenty of other things which can pose serious issues um, and serious threats to the existence of nonprofit organizations, not limited to um, PR crises. Uh, this is probably one of the most uh, common failures to imagine within the nonprofit world is um, if you're not an organization that already has a public relations arm, which again, many large organizations do this because they have a little bit more of a corporate mentality and there's also a lot of moving pieces to manage. So they really need a structure in how Im um, information gets disseminated. This is critically important to develop whether or not you can hire an outside consultant and just if there's an internal scandal or some sort of um, question about the operation of the organization, um, who's the focal point and how are we going to respond? Who's the person responsible for disseminating information for the for the media? Very important for organizations to speak with a united voice in a situation like that. Uh, last year, at DMAW's annual meeting, um, I saw a, a presentation from uh, uh, Steve Nardizzi, who used to be the CEO over at uh, Wounded Warrior Project, and now he uh, runs a firm that um, that that helps with crisis planning uh, for nonprofit organizations and other types of organizations as well. And um, if if you're not familiar with that scandal, in in short. Um, it was actually more of an instance of fundraising operations being misrepresented by the media, uh, which is very, very common. Um, a lot of outside media entities uh, do not understand how fundraising and development works. So they see overhead, they see money being spent, spent on retreats and galas and things like that. And they think that it's going to waste or there's something scandalous going on. And you can't control what somebody does with information, especially when they don't understand the context. So even if you're a local charity, um, this is certainly something that um, that you should be aware of and cognizant of. You know, you're only one op-ed in your local newsletter uh, newspaper away from um, having a, a potential PR crisis on your hands. So it's just something to think about in how you go respond to a crisis, whether it's a true scandal internally or just misunderstood information that gets widely disseminated, which is um, pretty much what, what happened to Wounded Warrior Project in that example. Um, the other thing that I come back to is, um, and, and a lot of location-based charities, museums, um, uh, things of that nature that are based on having a physical location and bringing people to that location, um, had to learn how to fundraise while they're being closed. I think this is a really important um, intellectual exercise for any organization who um, who is based on a physical location because I think it could change the way that you think about your organization as well. Because if you think about what a cultural center or a museum does, their mission is much bigger than the physical location. Um, usually there's education initiatives, or there's something that you're trying to create awareness about that is not being done elsewhere. And, you know, certainly your physical location is a big part. Maybe it's the majority of what you do, but you could certainly think about ways that you could advocate for that mission. Um, if that location was closed, um, if not for a global pandemic, for a building code issue or, 
or if you had to be control um, closed for construction or pest control. I mean, there's a million reasons why you could lose your physical location for a period of time. And I did hear a lot about a lot of organizations in the marketplace um, that felt compelled to stop fundraising because they were closed. And I think that's unfortunate because, again, most organizations, whether they realize it or not, are about much more than the physical location. It's the education initiatives. And especially if there's something that's not your fault and donors realize that that global mission is now being threatened, they will step up to the plate and help you. But you have to present your organization, what you're doing um, in a in a bigger picture sense and really try to answer that question, not what are we or where are we located, but what is our mission? And we talked earlier about some great examples of how organizations like the Smithsonian and the Cincinnati Zoo were able to help advance their mission and make donors realize that their mission was still relevant even while their physical locations were closed. So um, there are certain way, certainly ways that um, every type of organization could um, think about how they would go about doing that if they were to lose uh, their physical location again for an extended period of time. And and uh, this is a really, I think, a really important reinvention of your organization and how you present your mission because it puts you in a position where you're not just solely defined um, by your location, but it also makes it much easier than to fundraise um, outside of just general admission and getting people to the building and being able to cultivate the types of institutional bigger picture type donors that we were talking about in our direct mail segment. And again, by no means am I suggesting that your crisis planning should just be limited to these two instances. Um, I'm just saying that it's it's a useful and valuable exercise to sit down with your team and just start brainstorming. What are some things that could impact our fundraising operations? Could be something as basic as uh, another deep recession. Um, you know, how do you how do you respond to that? How do you navigate that? How do you change course on the fly? Um, but unless you sit down and have those brainstorming sessions, uh, one of two things tends to happen. You either do suffer from that failure of imagination where you're blindsided by something just because you failed to sit around and 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 think about that possibility, or it becomes one of those things that you kind of talk about off the cuff and you don't actually sit down and develop a plan on. So it's very important not just to do those brainstorming exercises, but to come up with a toolkit that you can deploy right away to respond to those situations as they come up. And now it's time for a brand new segment here on the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast, and this is called The Postscript. And as any good fundraiser knows, The Postscript, or the PS, if you will, is one of the most important parts of any fundraising appeal, whether it be direct mail or digital. It's that last chance to make that that push for donation and to reinforce uh, the positive impact that you're doing. And we hope that you find The Postscript segment equally valuable. And uh, even though we're late to the conversation here, um, I don't think it's ever too late to talk about the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think especially now it's important to focus on life uh, on a life like hers. And, and I'm going to talk about that in a, in a minute here. Um, but first, I, I just want to acknowledge um, the obvious, uh, the impact that she had uh, on our on our legal system, on our society, on our country as a whole on pop culture. I mean, this is a woman who became um, one of the most recognizable women on earth. 
Uh, she shattered countless glass ceilings and um, her legacy is really built in the millions of women who she has inspired uh, to dream and to um, to strive for for all kinds of goals. And, um, you know, that's really the ultimate testament to the impact that she had on her world. And just looking at her life, um, again, we, we still have a long way to go with reaching true gender equality in terms of our laws and, and our society as a whole. But, um, when you look back to the 1950s, um, when RBG was in Harvard Law School, she was one of nine women in her uh, Harvard Law class. And, um, you know, she, both in school and, and professionally, uh, you know, she consistently had to deal with questions of whether she was taking a place of a man. Not to say that never happens today, but that was certainly the norm back then. And just to realize what she had to overcome to eventually reach the top of her profession um, during these divisive times, um, I think it is is so important, and I find it reassuring to look at um, figures like her who really transcend politics, regardless of what you believe, whether you agree with all or no of the decisions that she ever wrote. You have to respect the life that she had, that she lived, and and the fact that she was able to live that life in a way that probably wouldn't have happened anywhere else on Earth. It's just a reminder that. These difficult times that we're in, um, it it is just a moment in time. It's that we will get through this, and there will be better days ahead. And um, the the life of of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the fact that it was possible in this country to me is, is just proof of that. That great things are possible here, and um, uh, I'm certainly appreciative of that. And and sometimes when you step back and look at the bigger picture, um, I find it reassuring that maybe things are not are not as tumultuous as 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 they seem and um when you think about things in terms of just being a moment in time uh, it makes it, it makes it easier to have an optimistic outlook even um during these during these times when things are we are so seem to be so bitterly divided and uh, there's a very contentious election around the corner um that regardless of how divided we are politically um this is an incredible country where uh, amazing things do happen. And um, I, I thank RBG for her life, her legacy, and for uh, reminding us all of, of what is capable of being achieved in this country. And um, I, on, a, on a closing note, um, I, I, I think it's also worth um, looking at one of the things that I found to be most in- inspiring from her outside of her professional accomplishments, and that was her friendship with uh, uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, You're talking about two people who um, couldn't be any more opposite on their judicial and likely their political philosophies, who still had this amazing friendship and their families were very close friends. Um, You saw a lot of really touching messages being put out by the Scalia family uh, after, um, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. And uh, boy, do we need that example now more than ever that um, it, it's important, you know, we can have our disagreements, we can passionately disagree, um, we can even sometimes angrily disagree. But at the end of the day, it is so important for us to um, just just maintain that humanity in each other. And when you remember that we're all flawed, vulnerable people, which uh, un- unfortunately was was really driven home by the pandemic, uh, which you know doesn't care 
um, who you are and or how much money you make or what your political philosophy is, that uh, when we just stop and remember each other as human beings, it becomes uh, much easier to maintain those relationships uh, on side of our political disagreements. And uh, in addition to all of the other things that she accomplished and her amazing legacy, I thank her for her friendship with uh, Antonin Scalia, because I think it's an example we need now more than ever. And uh, it's an example that we should all strive to follow. And that's it. We've come to the end of another episode of the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. And as always, I thank you for listening. My goal in putting out um, this podcast and the rest of my content is to bring value to you, the listener, and the nonprofit industry. And we certainly hope that we uh, have done that with this episode and, and the other content that um, that we put out. And uh, if you are getting value out of the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast, if you're hearing perspectives here that you're not getting elsewhere, if we're kickstarting some uh, new and interesting discussions, the very best way to pay that forward is to rate and review the podcast. Uh, I probably have about 30 podcasts in my feed. I know that there's some of my to-do list that I have to go back and rate and review, but it really does help um, in the rankings. It helps more fundraisers discover the show. It'll help us recruit more guests for our DMP um, or DMP groundbreaker interviews. And ultimately, it'll help with our mission, and that is to advocate for a uh, unsiloed approach to fundraising and to kickstart groundbreaking discussion. So we certainly would appreciate it and are very gracious if uh, you could take uh, 10 to 20 seconds to rate and review the show. And uh, of course, it helps if you pass it along to friends and family and colleagues as well, if you think they'll get value out of the podcast. And if you'd like to connect with me, the very best best way to do that is on LinkedIn. I am Dan Saunders. Um, You can also join the aforementioned Dynamic Nonprofits LinkedIn group, where we continue the conversations from the show. You can also reach me at Twitter. My handle is at MKTG Saunders. That's at MKTG Saunders. Or if you're still into email, you can always email the show at uh, dynamicnonprofits at gmail.com. But as always, thank you so much for listening to the show and for your loyal support to our longtime listeners out there. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and for everything that you have done to help uh, build this show and advance our mission and for everything that you do for this tremendous business of ours. And we have a lot of great content coming your way, more episodes, more uh, interesting, groundbreaking, groundbreaker interviews, and of course, our DNP quick takes. And I can't wait to share it with you all. And I will certainly be talking to you soon. But until then, I am Dan Sonner saying good night from New Jersey and reminding you to go out and vote Make sure you don't sit this one out regardless of what you believe and let's make sure to remember to stay united.